Here at Lady Farmer, we talk about so many different aspects of slow and sustainable living, a subject matter that can at times feel confusing, overwhelming, even misleading. And that's why a few years ago, we set out to write a book that might be a guide for those seeking a life of beauty, simplicity, and sustainability. We're thrilled to be able to offer you our own small guide for cultivating slow living, sustainable simplicity close to home available in our online marketplace. In the book, you've woven an easy-to-digest narrative of stories, recipes, tips, resources, ideas, and reflection. This collection of essays and resources will guide you to think about your own relationship to the planet, what you eat, what you wear, and how you live a sustainable lifestyle. It also contains a 21-day slow-living challenge of daily thought exercises to lead you in the process. For you Good Dirt listeners, we are offering free shipping of this wonderful little book with the code THEGOODDIRT in our online marketplace. So use the code THEGOODDIRT, T-H-E-G-O-O-D-D-I-R-T at checkout when you go to purchase your copy of The Lady Farmer Guide to Slow Living in our online marketplace for free shipping. That's The Good Dirt at The Lady Farmer online marketplace for free shipping on The Lady Farmer Guide to Slow Living. We hope you enjoy it. Thanks, everybody. I don't want to trade my life for just for money or just for making something cool. Like it needs to be, it needs to create the future that I want to see, that I believe in wholeheartedly with no downsides, right? With no waste, with no destruction, only positive. And if we can make Amazon and Facebook and all this stuff, why can't we use the same technology and power and business and economics? to scale permaculture, to scale agroecology, and to make it so that the world and humans can facilitate natural systems for benefit instead of having to extract from them. You're listening to The Good Dirt Podcast. This is a place where we dig into the nitty gritty of sustainable living through food, fashion, and lifestyle. And we're your hosts, Mary and Emma Kingsley the mother and daughter founder team of Lady Farmer. We're sowing seeds of slow living through our community platform, events, and online marketplace. We started this podcast as a means to share the wealth of information and quality conversations that we're having in our world as we dream up and deliver ways for each of us to live into the new paradigm, one that is regenerative, balanced, and whole. We want to put the microphone in front of the voices that need to be heard the most right now, The farmers, the dreamers, the designers, and the doers. So come cultivate a better world with us. We're so glad you're here. Now, let's dig in. Hey, Mom. How are you doing? Have you been living slowly this holiday season? Yes, I have. I've been building a fire every morning and doing my work and reading there and taking long walks and baking things and filling the house full of all the smells and yeah, just soaking it up. It's been really nice. How about you? Well, similarly to you, I can't say I have been baking, but I've been wanting (laughs) to bake. And today I finally did. So I made gingerbread from scratch for the first time, which I've never done. It was really fun and tasty. Uh, Yeah. There's nothing like molasses and ginger. Oh, so good. Yeah. We went and got a little tree today and 
I was very tempted both at the hardware store where we got our tree. It's connected to a Target. We had to get something at Target too. And I was very tempted by all of the fun like holiday things, you know, just like decorating stuff. It really took some real restraint to not just like buy, you know, there's even this like light up gnome thing that I still like, I haven't rolled all the way out. (laughs) I might go back and get it, but I really practiced not buying plastic (laughs) things and came home Put the lights on the tree, put on the ornaments that I already have, put on Christmas music, made gingerbread, and it's amazing how I didn't need those things. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't take much, does it? Yeah. Little greenery, little, little red. Sparkly lights. <laughs> yeah. Little music. Anyways. It's true. Good dirt listeners. We are so glad to have you here today as we find ourselves moving deeper into winter and the end of the year and into the holidays. And we hope that you're having lovely slow holiday season too yes and this is a good time to mention as well that we'll be taking a break from the show for the next two fridays christmas eve and new year's eve respectively but we'll be back first friday of january with a whole lineup of great good dirt interviews we hope you're finding the show as inspiring and as entertaining as we are Yes, and if you are, we would be so appreciative if you could help us spread the good dirt by sharing your favorite episode with a friend, leaving a review, or tagging us when you share anything about the show on social media. Any one of those things really helps us. Yes, and there is also another way you can support the good dirt, which is by joining our community platform, The Almanac. Becoming a member of The Almanac not only helps keep this show running, but it also allows you to connect with Good Dirt listeners from all over the world and get direct access to us through monthly gatherings, the book club, thoughtful conversations on the platform going on all the time, and articles, essays, all kinds of content, photos. You can sign up for the Almanac on our website at ladyfarmer.com under the community tab. And also an Almanac membership is a great gift. It is a zero waste, a low impact holiday gift for anyone in your life that might be interested in slow living and cultivating a more sustainable lifestyle. We've designed the platform to work as a seasonal guidebook of how to's and inspiration for walking more slowly and mindfully through the seasons. And we just know that you're going to enjoy it and your loved one that you will gift it to is going to love it. (laughs) Gift memberships are found in our online marketplace, which is also on our website under the shop tab. So if you want to go ahead and sign up, you will go under community. And if you want to buy a gift membership, you will find that in the shop. I can think of another awesome gift to yourself and to the world. What? Are you ready? I have no idea. (laughs) A permaculture lawn. Whoa. (laughs) That is a great, that's an amazing gift to the world. Yeah. And a great segue. So with that amazing gift idea, an incredible segue, would you like to introduce today's podcast guest? Yes. Today we're speaking to Justin West, co-founder and CEO of Thrive Lot, which is an online platform with a mission to create food abundance by helping people to design, install, and sustain their own edible outdoor oasis. It's all about transforming traditional yards and lawns into beautiful edible landscapes and forest gardens. It's even beyond growing organic nutrient-rich food. 
It's creating habitat for wildlife. It's building resilient soil and it rekindles your own connection with nature. So according to an article in the Washington Post, there are somewhere around 40 million acres of lawn in the lower 48. That's soaking up approximately 9 billion gallons of water per day. And all of that is for grass, probably chemically treated grass. And so it's crazy to think of all that land and water that could be used for growing food and habitat for the native plants and animals that would help to create more good dirt. Yeah, and Justin West did think of that. And that's what he's here to talk to us about today. Justin is not only a creative and successful entrepreneur, but he's a true visionary with a driving passion to make a radical change in the existing paradigm. And paradigm shifting is what we're all about here on The Good Dirt. The Thrive Lot concept is really exciting, and we're so excited to have Justin here to tell you about it. So take it away, Justin. Enjoy. So Thrive Lot is a marketplace platform where we have agroecologists like permaculture designers, landscape architects, and contractors. And we bring these groups together to install edible ecosystems for homeowners. And so what we realized was that there are a ton of people that wish they had a bunch of blueberries and apples and flowers and bees and birds and butterflies. And there's almost no one that can give them really what they want in most markets. There's a few landscape companies that have figured out putting all of those pieces together, but it's really hard to combine those, those three skill sets of ecology, design, and execution. And so we're a platform, we've got a standardized streamlined process that brings these contractors in at the right time. We represent the customer, help them define their vision, and then we create the software tools that make the process go smoothly and make the communication really clear and make the long-term maintenance uh, really easy. Can you tell us a little bit more how you got to be doing what you're doing right now with Thrive Lot? Yeah, so I did grow up in Tennessee and it was really strange because I was in this kind of startup world now and I've been obsessed with startup world ever since I learned about it like a decade ago, maybe even before that. And I was born outside the Bay Area, but then I lived most of my life in rural Tennessee and from age five to 10, I actually lived on an old Amish farm in the Cumberland Plateau that my parents had purchased from, from some Amish folks. And the Amish had left a huge, like 50 foot long grapevine, huge garden area, big orchard, big fruit trees. And then there was just like an acre of wild blackberries and wild blueberries. And uh, my family was kind of poor at the time. And we grew tons of food and foraged a ton and canned and preserved and froze stuff. When I was 10, we moved to West Tennessee and actually got involved in 4-H wildlife judging, which is basically looking at an area of land, assessing the, the ecosystem and assessing the wildlife population and making changes in the land to optimize the wildlife population, to heal the wildlife population. And uh, competed in one state over and over again. And then by the time I was old enough, 15, won the national championship in that, in my ecological design and the urban ecological design. And it's really funny because that just, it showed me, and this guy kind of forgot about it then for a decade, but it, it, it definitely ingrained in me 
that people can generate life at scale, at massive scale and at small scale. And, you know, we always think of humans destroying the planet, oh, just tearing everything up and poisoning everything. But we actually have the ability to facilitate nature and to make it even more biodiverse than it might be untouched. (laughs) And I think that inspired me long term. Through high school and college, I was always an entrepreneur, started a ton of businesses and side gigs, started e-commerce stores and made a bunch of products and uh, did like some sales contracts and built some agencies. But I was always looking for something that had a big positive impact and kept saying, well, you know, this thing is cool, but the side effect is that it also kind of creates some trash. And I, I even was going to get into indoor agriculture because I think And I thought even back in 2012, 2013, I was looking at, you know, just kind of flying around in Google Earth. And it's just obvious to me that agriculture is the biggest net impact on the living sphere of this planet, on the biosphere. And it was also clear at that time that electric cars were going to be a thing, solar and wind power were going to be a thing. But who is dealing with the fact that we're eating the planet and that we're eating our future? And so, uh, you know, I was looking into indoor farming and then, then this question came up of, well, what if your solution is just the way things are done and it's maximally successful, as successful as the physical laws of the universe allow? And what that means with urban farming would be that, well, we actually end up just building and growing populations and destroying all biodiverse life on the planet and removing nature's IP for future generations and screwing up some very critical systems that we don't even understand. So I kind of put that aside and right at that point in time, permaculture just kind of smacked me in the face. I've been obsessed with systems design for a long time. And this, and then it, it resonated so much, I think going back to that 4-H wildlife uh, experience in that it's a design science where we can work with plants and soil and nature, and we can put the right plant in the right place so that everything takes care of itself, so that the soil is developed, so that uh, predators are brought in for the pests of another species. But we can do that, and we can create these ecosystems that benefit humans still, that produce tons and tons and tons of food. And kind of, you know, what I, the gardening that I grew up mostly with has the same problems as industrial agriculture in which we say, I want carrots, broccoli, and corn. And we clear out the ecosystem and we force in what we want. And then we have to fight to keep it there. And nature expands to fill niches. Like something eats a thing that you want. And in a normal biodiverse ecosystem, it would eat that thing and it would hit an edge really quickly. And there's something else right around the corner that also eats it. And so there's a balance. But whenever we do gardening and whenever we do, especially farming at scale, we actually create pests because we put all the same food all together and something else eats it and it starts eating it and it reproduces as fast as possible and there's nothing to stop it. So anyways, I got obsessed with permaculture. At the same time, I was obsessed with startups and living as a digital nomad. So Uber was my car, Airbnb was my house, I was running my marketing agency on uh, Upwork. And I saw that platforms, marketplace platforms are the most aggressive and valuable change agents, things that are arising in our world. You said marketplace platform. So can you explain what that is? Absolutely. So a marketplace platform, my definition 
it's a technology-enabled business that connects parties to exchange value. And in that light, Facebook is a marketplace platform. It connects advertisers with viewers <laughs> and to exchange value. Netflix is a marketplace platform. It connects producers of content with viewers to exchange value. The obvious marketplace platforms are Amazon. Google is, an, is another advertising marketplace platform. Etsy, Uber, Airbnb, all the different freelancer platforms. And when you get them right, they create a ton of value. And uh, there's a stat, and I, I believe it's something, it's something along the lines of since 1994, 90% or 70% of all economic value created has been due to network effects from platforms. That's why you see the, the most valuable businesses in the world are you know, Facebook and Netflix and Amazon. And Apple is also a platform because they earn money from their app store. <laughs> They're a hardware manufacturer, but a big part of their valuation is, is a platform. And then my question was, well, you know, I want to do something with my life that I feel is the only thing worth mm -hmm. doing. <laughs> I don't want to trade my life for just for money or just for making something cool. Like it needs to be, it needs to create the future that I want to see that I believe in wholeheartedly with no downsides, right? With no waste, with no destruction, only positive. And if we can make Amazon and Facebook and all this stuff. Why can't we use the same technology and power and business and economics to scale permaculture, to scale agroecology, and to make it so that the world and humans can facilitate natural systems for benefit instead of having to extract from them? The potential of people growing food in whatever piece of land they have, and I'm sure as you can attest to, it doesn't take much, would go such a huge way right. towards, you know, feeding hungry people, filling in food deserts, yeah. and regenerating the soil, which we are learning more and more about every day, is mitigating climate change. That's right. This is so huge. And feeding bees and birds and butterflies. We can create food for us that's sustainable. But it's even easier to create food for the starving hummingbirds and bees <laughs> that are, yes. you know, that are disappearing. And there's there's over 40 million acres of lawn in the United States. It is the largest single irrigated crop in the United States that produces no food for no one and not for wildlife either. It has very, very little positive environmental impact in terms of carbon sequestration and most of the grasses are invasive species. There's 10 times as much chemicals poured onto lawns per acre as industrial agriculture. And we all, we all know how bad pesticides and chemical fertilizers and herbicides and fungicides that go on our food is. <laughs> it's even worse with lawns. Most of the species used by landscaping are invasive species. And so not only are they not providing any food for bees, birds, and butterflies around the home, but they're also escaping and they're going into our native wild areas and choking out and killing native species and destroying wildlife. It's a huge, huge, huge deal. It is. And it is something that I think very few people are aware of. And that's why I'm, I'm just so excited about this episode because 
everybody listening out there, let us tell you your grass lawn is a place where you can begin. Everybody wants to know what can they do? What can they do? You can start right outside your door, healing the planet, growing food for yourself, bringing natives back into your landscape, which in turn creates a rich, healthy atmosphere and environment. It just goes on and on. It's like, talk about ripples in the water. And then I saw your thing on Instagram and I thought someone is doing this. I was just almost just about jumped out of my skin. I'm so grateful. And you know, this isn't some kind of like brilliant novel innovation. Like we're really using ancient techniques that have been mostly forgotten. (laughs) Yeah. Putting the right plant in the right place and getting more food with less work. The whole lawn thing is new. I mean, relatively speaking, you know, you look at humans on the earth, the lawns, they're just like a fashion really that came, I don't know, a couple hundred years ago, maybe, I don't know, maybe you know more about this than I do, but it's just almost like we became brainwashed that if you're a homeowner, you have to have this lawn to go with it. And it's nothing but a style that came in. What, do you know anything about that? Yeah, absolutely. There's some funny things. I want to really start by saying, I love to get outside barefoot. And I love a good green lush carpet and doing like gymnastic exercises and stuff outside in and where you can feel that soft, spongy soil underneath. I get the desire for a green carpet. What we want to do is move from using invasive grasses that have to be mowed, that need to be sprayed, that don't do anything for the soil, that never flower, to more native perennial evergreen ground covers. And there's a lot of amazing ground covers that if the soil is right, I mean, creeping thyme is like this beautiful, it it stops growing three to four inches tall. It will spread over a whole lawn. In the spring, it gets a blanket of flowers that feeds early pollinators. You can go out, you can walk around in it barefoot. It feels great. You can take your scissors and clip some of it out and put it on your pasta, make tea out of it. It's medicinal. Like it's just a radically different, (laughs) radically different thing. Never needs to be touched by a mower. It's less work for you. It saves you money in the long term. So just um, a lot of things in our modern world were built because there, there could be a profitable business model that comes out of it, right? If I sell you grass, you got to buy grass seed, you got to buy grass spray, you got to pay the guy that buys the mower that comes out of my home store, that kind of process. And we can still make money from ecosystems. It's just instead of a bunch of mowing and blowing and spraying, let's train a bunch of people how to prune and how to harvest and how to graft and how to work with natural systems and with amazing species. Like let's, let's, get people proud that they have like a sea buckthorn bush in their front yard. That's, you know, super antioxidizing and beautiful. (laughs) Yeah. It's getting things into the mainstream or the collective consciousness, just like the green zoysia grass or whatever, whatever kind of grass it is, you know, that you want. And then it becomes a an effort and a project and an expense to maintain this. What if you just shifted that to what you're just saying, you know, something native, something nourishing to the soil, something medicinal, something edible, something that you don't have to maintain. It's just such a better paradigm, but people don't realize it. They're just not, they're not aware of it. 
It is to me too. And that shift again, it, you know, it doesn't, I think it's actually net much bigger and much better for the economy and especially for local economies. You look at the landscaping, which is all mowing and blowing and spraying, it's typically incredibly underpaid people. And, you know, it's going to be hard work one way or the other. But what we're doing in ins installing these ecosystems and, and fruit trees and berry bushes and uh, pollinator meadow habitats, like, that increases as the style changes from lawn to ecosystem, to lush, bountiful ecosystem. That increases the property value. And because people know this is going to give me medicine and food for the rest of my life, and also it has powerful psychological effects. If I'm sitting under a tree, if I can step out my door into nature, there's powerful psychological effects. People know that it's more valuable. They're willing to pay more. That creates local skilled labor jobs that pay better, where there's more room in the project to pay people well, give people a living wage. And um, I really want to see a future in which people can have flexible gig work with a path of progression that pays a living wage and that is local. <laughs> I'm excited to hear a little bit more about Thrive Law and how that's been going. As I understand, it's pretty new and I'm really just interested in how it's playing out. Yeah, so it, it is in terms of actually going to market, it is very new. We spent a lot of time trying to figure out exactly where we could create value, talking to a lot of experienced people who are very successful in installing bountiful ecosystems for homeowners, that kind of thing. And since we've launched, the response has really been incredible. I've been advertising for a decade and I have never seen so many ads shared and I've never had customers coming in the door saying, thank you for existing. <laughs> I've been, I've been looking for this and I can't find it. We have opened 30 markets to date. We have about 120 active projects right now. And we, we, we also are tracking our impact and, and just with, we've actually only completed 20 projects so far because this is kind of a buildup and this has been our first real year. And these things take time, you know, it takes a couple of seasons to do the install. It takes a little while to get the design through, but our impact to date, each project sequesters 8.5 metric tons. So looking at 170 metric tons of carbon a year sequestered as these trees are growing and, and breathing. We've regenerated 6.2 acres already. Again, acres that were probably being mowed, that were being sprayed, that had runoff issues because there's no soil under them. We've installed 4,800 perennial plants, and that leads to 2.6 million gallons of water being retained. This is another piece of this, and, and the difference between lawns, traditional gardens and people who say, I've tried to grow food at my house, I can't do it. And what we're doing in, in agroecology is the soil development. And soil is really crazy. It's a living, breathing thing. It's the gut biome of the world. <laughs> holds tons of carbon and the carbon then holds water. Carbon sticks to water. That's why all living things are made out of carbon. And a 1% increase in soil organic matter holds another 20,000 gallons of water per acre in the soil. And so this has a huge potential impact for cities. And it's something that most people don't understand that I hope more people start to realize over the next few years. When houses are constructed in the United States, 
the very first thing that happens is the contractor comes out and clears off the topsoil and usually takes it to the dump or to some sort of fill dump site. And so that living layer that's full of carbon gets stripped off because it, it gets muddy, it sinks, it's spongy, right? They're, they want to get down to the clay that's usually underneath or whatever is hard and stable underneath, build on that, and then slap down some sort of invasive species of grass that would grow on anything, but, oh, you've got to water it and you've got to spray it. And whenever we start to build the soil, and if people then go out there and dig and they say, well, I've got clay soil, I can't grow anything. Well, you don't have soil. <laughs> You're looking at the subsoil. What's under most grass in most of that 40 million acres is subsoil. And the first thing that we do is come out there and put a, build a foot of soil. <laughs> and what that does is holds tons and tons of water. It means that we're less reliant or unreliant, depending on where we are on irrigation. It means that the plants themselves have that gut biome of the earth, that they have the probiotics, they have nutrients, they're being fed, they don't need chemical fertilizer. It means their immune systems are stronger because they're getting fed well and they're healthy and strong. And the whole cycle is what nature would naturally build over thousands of years of plants growing up and growing down with their root systems and dying and decomposing and turning into soil. So the soil, the soil is just a really magical piece of the whole equation. Especially all the science that's being done these days around the connection between that soil and us as humans. You know, you called it the, I think he's called it the gut of the planet or the gut of the world. It's very, very closely related to our own gut. Sure. So when we are nurturing that soil in our surroundings, we are nurturing ourselves. We're nurturing right. our own health. Yes. And I could get really kind of cerebral here when I, you know, this duality thinking where we, you yes. know, we say it's us and nature. It's so false. You That's know, right. we That's are right. it. We are yes. it. It is us. Uh, we yes. are one in one with this soil. You know, our construction, our so-called progress and everything is literally keeping the life source off of the surface and disposing of it, and then thinking we can build something on top of it. I just think that's such a huge metaphor. And then getting confused when our own gut biome and our own health and our own probiotic layers start mm -hmm. to fail, and we start to have the tons yes. of allergies and tons of mysterious diseases, and and we're sick. And you know, the planet's sick. She's she's yeah. running a temperature. I'm always running into all these metaphors about the whole thing. It feels so huge. You said the first thing you do when you go start a project is to build the topsoil. What does that involve? And how long does it take? So it depends. Yeah. <laughs> it depends on what's there, where you are, what, what bioregion you're in. And so that's why, you know, Thrive Lot, we are not, well, actually, some of our team members are actually pretty competent ecologists, but we're not the agroecological experts. And we we don't tell customers oh yeah, you can grow blueberries over there. We're going to come in we're going to do X, Y, Z. We don't drive that discussion at all. We're the business and technology people. And what we do is we make connections and, and we set up a process so that an, a local expert who knows how to build soil in the local area, who knows how to grow food in the local area, who knows how to work with the local ecosystems and native plants starts by going out and assessing the property and looking at what we've determined from our initial consultation that they want, they think they want, kind of the vision, and then starts to say, well, listen, I know you you want blueberries over here 
on the east side of your house by the kitchen door, but it's going to cost three times as much because your soil over here is not well drained and it's down, you know, and there's just not enough sunlight. But hey, if we go uphill over here on this side, we can put blueberries there and we can do the trees over here that are going to shade, you know, block the wind. And, and so the what we do is we really just support the local experts that exist everywhere. There's 100,000 people in the United States that have taken a permaculture design course. There's at least four to 5,000 of those that have actually actively practiced some sort of agroecology and kept things alive for a few years. And we want to support those people and help them generate more life. That's amazing because, correct me if I'm wrong, but I would think the majority of people that have gotten a permaculture certificate have gotten it out, you know, out of an interest and a passion. And the primary motivation was not to go get a a high paying job somewhere. That's right. And then here you are offering like a real world application for something that's not only making a living for them, but regenerating everything. That's right. I want to clarify that, you know, PDC is just one path to what I would call being a competent agroecologist and, and a PDC really doesn't even complete that path. Um, I think you still have to go out in nature and keep working with it and learn from it for years. And a lot of people, some of the most talented people that we worked with have just worked in the soil and nature for years. And maybe they've learned from indigenous people. They found their information just self-taught in books, that sort of thing. I just use the permaculture design certificate yeah. number as a proxy, but it's it's a it's a beautiful thing too. But yeah, the, the folks that we have found that are trying that, you know, if I go, let's say I go get a PDC and I want to be, I want to work in the green industry. I want to create ecosystems. Right now, I've got to also, you know, I've got to, I've got to one, spend a lot of time with natural systems. I've got to have this huge body of knowledge about the soil, this huge body of knowledge about plants, understand weather, understand patterns. And then I also have to figure out how to run ads, price my services, yeah. sell, follow up leads, figure out business software, send tons of emails, send quotes, do taxes. Oh, and then if I'm going to actually get a bigger job that's going to pay me well, I've also got to learn some kind of CAD software. I've got to be able to create designs. I've got to figure out the optimal way to communicate with a customer who is in a totally different mindset than I am as a scientist, really. And then if I want to install those things, I've got to buy trucks and equipment and put people on payroll and figure out their benefits and figure out how to make money through the winter. You know, there's all these layers of barriers, which is why I think there's there's so much demand. There's so many people that want this in their yard, but it's really hard to get it because there's so many layers to actually start that business. And so we can bring a lot of value in a platform and figuring out all the business functions, being the representative and holding space for these projects to take place in, a, in an efficient and, and uh, effective manner. This is the thing to have these ideas, but then to implement them and put them out in the world. You just summed up everything. I will say it's the hardest thing I've ever done. It's the hardest thing I could ever imagine anyone doing, but um, man, is it rewarding. And honestly, I can't feel like there's anything else worth doing. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think that means that you're doing what you need to be doing. So that's inspiring. I guess I have a question Along the lines of challenges, but sort of on the consumer side, obviously you're preaching to the choir here. We're all singing the same tune, but I wonder like why isn't every single 
private resident in America doing this right now? Yeah, great, great, great question. A lot of things. We were talking about lawns earlier, and I didn't, I, I forgot to share some of the things about lawns. The word lawn comes from a French word, apparently, that means barren land. <laughs> uh, the style of a, gra- a short cropped grass lawn apparently originated in the 1600s uh, England. And it was a sign of wealth. The big houses would have the biggest lawns because they had the most sheep and sheep would keep it close cropped and need grass. And that style, you know, it's one of the few things where fashion hasn't changed in, you know, 400 plus years. <laughs> and, yeah. and, and when you think about the evolution of the American family and the American home, we really built up quickly around cars and going to work, right? The suburban American life is in the car, go to work, come home, get, you know, get the things. And the lawn was just kind of accepted and mowing and all these other things. The lawn was just kind of accepted as this is the way it is. It looks nice, right? It looks clean. And it's kind of this clean, sterile, organized, you know, very kind of organized thing. And what you do on weekends. <laughs> Yeah, and what you do on weekends. And we know we know now that being outdoors in nature is extremely therapeutic. And and I don't doubt for a minute that people enjoy some people enjoy mowing. And I think it's simply because it's the only thing that gets them outside and moving in the sun, breathing fresh air. Growing up as a kid, the the minimum that I ever had to mow, starting at about age seven, the minimum I ever had to mow is six acres. And so I got really tired of mowing. Uh, <laughs> but I think there's much better things to be done outside. And I think a, a real ecosystem that's not just grass just gives you so, so many more benefits. But there is also this piece to especially American culture, but really I would call it more a modern Western world, which is everywhere and every, everything now that's eating the world, is that we're educated by marketing. And so, you know, Heart healthy whole grains, uh, you know, there's, there's just <laughs> gluten-free yogurt, you know, there's all these like just really crazy things that you see where people learn, people learn from marketing because I, there is hundreds, probably hundreds of thousands of times as much money spent per capita on marketing and advertising messages to people as is actually spent on education. <laughs> Wow. I mean, there's a stat, I'm going to butcher this a little bit, but not too far off. And I think it's a hundred million dollars spent per day in marketing just on children's food or no, just on unhealthy food, just to children. (laughs) So, and so there, there is this shift happening though, right? There is this, in the, the information age, is opening up this path where people are seeking out answers and they're questioning their reality and they're questioning everything. I think something that's been really cool to see with COVID is a lot of people questioning what they do for work and saying, you know what, that thing that I did to get a paycheck, I'm not doing it anymore. I don't believe in that. I don't want to see that in the world. And I think that is the start to choosing our own reality, which is, which is what we can do. But but you know, our, our goal with Thrive Lot is to use the existing system, the existing economy of this, this incredible energy and force to build up that marketing. I want to run Super Bowl ads 
about lush, bountiful yeah. home ecosystems. Everyone just kind of accepts yeah. that grass is, it's either grass or bushes or trees. They don't know that you can have kind of lush green carpets that are not grass that don't require mowing. They think it's either gardening myself or going to the grocery store. And when they've tried to garden themselves, they're going into this clay subsoil that we talked about. And they're only trying to grow things that they see at the store. And we talked about how with kind of traditional gardening, you're putting up, you're kind of setting up the environment to create pests because you're putting a bunch of very nutritious food all together and maybe the soil's not developed. So there, and then even if, even when people do get to the point where they learn about agroecology, they learn about permaculture, they learn about uh, creating wildlife habitat, that type of thing it's still this kind of, you got to do it yourself message. And people are doctors and teachers and construction workers with families, like they're busy and they're working hard and they're creating value for other people. And they should be able to invest in paying someone else locally to come and set up the ecosystem for them and to keep the food coming for them. You know, the average family has two cars and the average cost of a car is $41,000. It's like, Wow. <laughs> a lot less than that will get you an incredible ecosystem. We'll, we'll create self-sufficiency for you with a lot of food through a lot of the year, depending on where you are and create a lot of benefits and home value and psychology and environmental impact and all the other things we've talked about. So, so I think it's a problem of education and a problem of that. It's just not available widely yet to have it done for you. Do you believe that there's any sort of shortage in the this agroecologist kind of professional that does know like I know your job is to connect the we'll call it the gardener for simple terms with mm -hmm. the customer do we need more gardeners well I, we will absolutely what I think exists right now I kind of describe it like two electrodes you know and they're they're full of energy there's like you know the sparks the lightnings jumping off of them and we've just got to get them close enough in terms of, of the barrier to entry, in terms of ease for someone to become an agroecologist, ease for someone to buy a bountiful ecosystem for their house and get it installed. We've got to get it close enough to let the energy exchange. I think there are tons of people. I know there's tons of my friends that, you know, they got a college degree and they went to sit in a white box under a fluorescent light and look at spreadsheets and hate their life. But there's yeah. there's no green alternative that pays anywhere close to well, right? So yeah, I, I really don't know if there is more demand than supply right now. I used to think there was way more demand than supply, and now we've figured out that we can kind of we can layer up different suppliers and expand the potential of that supply so that the ecologist is leveraged more where they can have greater impact with other existing contractors and, and landscape people. But you know what, what I hope is, and what I expect is that as we're getting more and more customers and as people are finding out, ooh, that's a possibility, what a difference, you know, a different style than grass. Oh yeah, I want that. Well, then as the opportunities arise, we continue to reduce that barrier and to build the technology and systems to bring people in, educate them, put them to work in an apprenticeship fashion and give them a path of progression if that's what they want. Oh, so cool. So just imagine your, um, your basic local lawn service owner that, you know, he wants to deliver to the customer what the customer wants. What if this 
person that owned the lawn service could say, well, there's something else you might be interested in. And they're connected with you. You educate them, you give them the information, and then they, they pass it along to the people actually doing the planting and all that. So it's like a web, you know. We were talking about like the possibility of these you know, landscape companies that are everywhere. What if they knew about this and they could like, literally they're like agents of change, each one of them. There's this thing in, in kind of industry disruption and category change. And I don't think it'll happen quite like that. And the reason is your average uh, lawn care company has invested in a bunch of mowers and trimmers and hedge trimmers and has trained people, finds people at the lowest possible cost that can run those things. And they run a super efficient operation with no customer loyalty. They're just competing on price all the time and trying to, you know, trying to drive that bottom line. It's very low margin, very difficult business. What we're doing and, and this is this is something that, that we've learned from talking to other people that have tried to shift. What we're doing is actually antithetical to that entire business model from the balance sheet. I mean, from the equipment that is owned and amortized over time. <laughs> and here's the thing, you know, as much as I want to flip 40 million acres tomorrow, it's not physically possible yet. And this thing, just like any tree or any good ecosystem, it's going to take some time to grow and it's going to shift and ultimately, eventually, in the later stages, I do believe you're going to see lawn care companies that it's no longer lawn care anymore. It's, it's ecosystem care. And they're out there with, with pruning shears instead of weed eaters, right? And, and, uh, and maybe they're still out there with weed eaters. I mean, there's you know, still, if you want a certain aesthetic, that sort of thing. But there's, there's a totally different base of equipment and a totally different base of training and knowledge around what we're trying to do. Now, what I do think we will start to see and what we're already doing is we are connecting with those landscaping companies, landscaping as opposed to lawn care. Those landscaping companies that do have the trucks and the shovels and the bulldozers and the teams that know how to plant trees and put out mulch and all this kind of stuff. We are putting them to work and have built a process where they come in and actually do the installation sort of under the tutelage of the, of the ecologist. So those folks, the, the more design build landscapers, we absolutely work with from the beginning. And I think that lawn care as an industry will shift over time. If it's successful, if the implementation of this ecosystem is successful, then it's by nature, literally low maintenance. Yes. <laughs> Which is antithetical to the whole long hair business as well. So yeah, I just thought of that as you were talking. So yeah, and just like all things that I feel like are worth doing, it's low maintenance, but it takes a little bit more effort and thought and care and like setting it up and time. And that's just kind of the way it is across the board with all of these things that we talk about on this podcast. What about like universities? Like specifically, I'm thinking of the college that I went to is like, on 13,000 acres, a lot of it's woods, but mm -hmm. they have this huge quad and all these amazing green spaces. Like that seems like kind of an obvious target for me for, you know, these forward thinking kind of places. Have, have you guys thought about that or like any commercial uh, places too? Absolutely. So we've started with the, the high-end homeowner offering because it's just kind of easier to manage and scale and build up the capacity and figure out how to deliver right. that smaller project. But the existing landscaping industry 
is over $100 billion a year, mostly mowing, and half of it is commercial and government. Whoa. So we absolutely want to build up and meet that market as well. Oh, my gosh. The National Mall. What if it was like (gasps) Clover? Yes, Yes. exactly. Exactly. Schools, hospitals, you know, anything to do with health, apartment buildings and and government land like um, housing authorities, parks. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot. We've got a lot of potential in their roadsides. That's awesome. Have you heard of this concept of like a public food forest where the space is like this? You have fruit trees and you have like the edible landscaping and everything where people can actually come eat off of it. Yes, absolutely. We worked with some folks really closely with Mike McCord in Atlanta, who was heavily involved in the Browns Mill Food Forest, which I think is still the largest public food forest in the country. I think one of the key pieces that we've seen is that they work as long as there is a long-term plan for support and education. A lot of food desert communities, you know, without education and knowing how to harvest, knowing what to harvest and knowing that this is food, this is nutritious, this is how to prepare it so that it's good. And even these are the utensils. A lot of people don't have the utensils to prepare. So there needs to be this foundation. We've definitely seen a lot of well-meaning agroecological folks spend a lot of time and effort to put something up that then just kind of fell by the wayside because there wasn't the uh, the long-term plan and support. Yeah. And so this is something that we're we're committed to doing. We're a startup right now. We're raising money. We don't have profit. But as soon as we have profit, we're committing 10% of that profit towards a foundation to actually find the biggest areas of impact where we can set up a long-term support system, education, and bring this value to people that can't otherwise afford it. That's amazing. Can you speak specifically to any in the past, I guess, technically what, two years that you've been an organization, but maybe you said the past kind of year with just all of the getting off the ground, specific like success moment story. I know that's still early, but any, any stories about where you're like, oh yeah, where ThriveLad is like doing the work, what we're set out to do. We love stories. Oh man. Specific stories. Oh my gosh. I got so many of them and they're all, you know, there's so many people that come to us. And I think I said this a little bit before that come to us, just thanking us, Mm -hmm. (laughs) thanking us for existing. Doesn't that feel good? (laughs) It does. It does. And the same thing on the agroecologist side. I mean, again, you know, I kind of talked about how hard it is to grow and run a business as an agroecologist and and having to have this split brain between science and nature and business and sales and advertising, that sort of thing. And uh, I mean, last year we had a, an incredible talented permaculture designer who told us at the beginning of the year that his family wouldn't have been eating through the winter if it wasn't for us. And that just kind of hit me. (laughs) We have um, a really, really cool project in Fort Lauderdale at the Museum of Discovery and Science, which is one of the largest children's science museums in in the country and the world. And the CEO there, Joe Cox, is just an amazing human, really an an ecologist himself. And they are building a huge food resilience and climate resilience exhibit and spending millions of dollars on it. And that multi-million dollar exhibit is going to open up into a forest garden that we just finished installing a couple of weeks ago. 
and people will get to walk through a forest garden. Kids will get to experience that. And what we're hoping from that, because this, this museum and, and Joe is a leader in the Children's Museum Association, the National Children's uh, Museum Association, and a, a global uh, science museum association. So what we're hoping is that this becomes kind of the seed for educational facilities, science facilities, museums, children's education around the world to start to install forest gardens, teach people about agroecology, teach people from the earliest ages that we can facilitate natural systems for a benefit. We don't just have to extract and poison and kill and fight. Like we can actually work with nature and nature will feed us. <laughs> and that yes. is um, that is one of the most exciting things that, that, is, that is happening. And teaching people the concept that we have everything we need to have enough to eat and to feed everybody and that it's so it's literally right out our back door (laughs) and now with all this especially what's been intensified over the last couple years about you know the climate crisis people think there's nothing they can do they feel it's too big it's all in the hands of the big corporations and stuff which yes that they hold a huge responsibility but and I'll circle back around to something I said earlier. This is something you can do. And you were talking about carbon sequestration, and we talk about that a lot here on this show. We mentioned it a lot, but what we mean by that, can you explain to people what you mean by that and why agroecology is actually sequestering carbon and helping to mitigate this carbon loss, which is contributing so hugely to climate change? Yeah, yeah. So um, this is huge. Living things store carbon. If you take a hundred gallon bucket of soil and you plant a tree in it and you water that tree until it gets huge and then you remove the tree, scrape off all the soil, the soil is still going to weigh the same amount. The tree is carbon and water and some other stuff that came through the energy of the sun. And most agroecology is is focused around perennial beneficial plants. And so trees and shrubs and and plants that come back year after year and grow in size and sequester more and more carbon and have a deep root system and and build the soil as their roots are breaking down and as their leaves are breaking down and as they're growing together. So there's there's the sequestration that just happens from generating life. And if, if you can imagine, you know, taking a square foot of your average lawn and taking all the organic matter there and measuring it in, in like a glass tube, and then you can imagine taking a, a piece of a dense layer, beautiful flowering forest with multiple layers, right, of life. And you do the same thing. You take a glass tube and you, you blend up and chop down all of the life in there. It's, it's huge. It's hundreds of times more actual life and actual carbon sequestration. The other piece is the, the diverting piece. And whenever one of our installations goes in, uh, we like to think it means that a little piece of industrial agriculture somewhere disappears, right? Somewhere on the edge of a jungle that was about to be cut down or a rainforest that was about to be cut down to grow more corn and soybeans, that progress stopped, right? A truck that was going to be shipping food 1,500 miles and a boat and a train 
disappears. <laughs> and tons of chemicals that were going to go into that production and tons of gas that was going to be pumped out and turned into emissions to transport it and to grow it disappears. So there's this diverting piece as well. And then the the waste, the, the packaging waste that, that comes from all of that as well, you know, just, just disappears. It doesn't go in landfills anymore. So home agroecology has this potential to hit so many problematic levels and to, I mean, the average person in the world's carbon footprint is four tons a year. Our average project to date sequesters eight and a half tons. <laughs> uh, now the average American's footprint today is 16 tons, but with a combination of reducing that diverting piece and sequestering that growing life piece, we can really, really shrink and, and almost even remove remove our footprint. That's amazing. That's a true example of the word regenerative, like putting life back. Yeah. And thank you for explaining that so succinctly. It's really hard. It's a lot. Yes, it is. And we say it a lot. And I think we assume people understand it. And I'm not, you know, it's, it's quite a concept. And something else you touched on that I want to emphasize is that a lot of people might enjoy clarification on or benefit from clarification on is the foods we think of like the garden vegetables and the farm vegetables that we think of commonly, you know, tomatoes, the squash, the cucumbers, all those things. Those are annuals and they grow every year and they, they take things out of the soil every year. And these are wonderful things. We're not saying don't grow these things, but as you just said a few moments ago, the perennials are the things that are going to keep the life going. I just wanted to make that distinction between annuals and perennials. If people really understand what we're talking about and we're talking about growing food, it's, it's so much more than just tomato squash and cucumbers. It's so much more than that. Yeah. My favorite example is a mulberry tree, which most people have never experienced eating mulberries. Most people don't know that the the leaves and the bark is medicinal. (laughs) A mulberry tree, once you plant it, a super hardy tree takes very little, almost no work can grow to 100 feet tall, produce 600 pounds of fruit every single year, live for 300 years, and you don't have to do anything. <laughs> right. And it's yeah. tasty. And it's tasty. And it's, and it's nutrient-rich. Yeah, it's anti-oxidizing. <laughs> so I'll tell you a story. We moved out here. We moved from D.C. to the farm nine and a half years ago. This is our 10th year. And... I went out there one day early on in the spring and I looked up and I saw these purple things <laughs> coming for a tree. And I said, what is this? I didn't even know what it was. And I had to ask my neighbor, oh, that's mulberries. And then of course, you know, once you're aware of, you see them all over the place. And then we started picking them and eating them. And it was just like this whole universe opens up of things that are already there. They're already there. The, the earth is just like arms open with all these gifts yes and we don't even know it yes and there used to be more of them because the native people of north america kept spreading them around intentionally Mm -hmm. putting them beside their friends so that they could grow more so they could have more food i mean a quarter of eastern forests used to be chestnuts which is a huge Mm -hmm. spreading tree which produces huge nutrient-rich fruits and um that those are gone now, those are extinct because of landscaping, because yeah. this pretty little chestnut was brought over from China to be installed in landscapes in a neighborhood in New York. And 
brought a blight with it and yeah. killed everything. <laughs> Whoa. Justin, what does the good dirt mean to you? Good dirt to me, I love to get outside barefoot and I love the the sponginess of deep, real soil. I love walking through a forest and and where the leaves and the sticks and the needles have been breaking down for years and you can feel that that depth and that sponginess and you know there's a there's a microrhizome <laughs> in there you know there's a network of life that's working that's storing carbon that's creating the oxygen that we breathe so that's the good dirt and something worth looking into is, is looking into the um the oxygen that comes from the forest floor as opposed to the transpiration of forest leaves it's actually yeah. um, it's actually as important and not much more important in creating the oxygen mix in our atmosphere I think about that a lot with decomposing leaves, especially at this time of year when, like, speaking of blowers, my street is just, it's all leaf blowers, which is crazy. The whole leaf, like, thing is crazy, but you go into a forest floor and it's all decomposing leaves and it's, like, the most, like, it smells good. It's, like, it has to be, I've known nothing about it biologically, but I know that it's good and that we're, it's so backwards that we blow them into piles, put them in plastic bags and throw them away. It's yeah. so weird. Yeah. yeah. Save, save that stuff. <laughs> That's also a fashion. You know, where did that get implanted in our cultural brains? It's this, uh, it's this sterile, you know, organ. we've got to organize nature. We have to control and command. Yeah. I think the planet and humanity is waking up to a different way of, of being with nature. I hope so. And Thrive Lot, your company is an indication of hope, I think. Is there anything else that you want the audience to understand about the work that you're doing or anything you feel like we didn't touch on today that you want to leave us with? Check out the website, thrivelot.com. Post it in your next door, post it in your Facebook groups, talk to people about it. We're not nationwide yet, but we will be very soon. Hopefully this time next year, we'll be able to be practically everywhere or at least where most people are. So for people listening right now, where are you right now? So right now, all over the central and south. But if we get enough people in an area that get on our list and ask us to come there, we will come there. So if people if people go to the website, share, sign up for the list, send us a message, we'll come to you. Cool. Oh, so excited. All right. Thank you so much, Justin. We've so enjoyed having you. Thank you for... Coming. Same here. And let's, let's talk again soon. Thank you so much. Cool. Bye-bye. 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 Thanks so much for joining us on this episode of the Good Dirt Podcast. And remember, we are usually here every Friday, but we will not be here for the next two Fridays. That's Christmas Eve and New Year's Eve. We hope that you guys are enjoying your holidays as well. And we'll see you back in January for some more awesome interviews all about slow and sustainable living. And if you haven't already, go to our website, make sure you're signed up for our newsletter, follow us on Instagram at we are lady farmer and go ahead and join us in the almanac. It's a party in there. We'd love to have you. Yeah. And don't forget that you can gift a membership to the almanac and share it with a loved one or a friend. And we would love to have all of you. Yes. So happy holidays from us and we'll see you in 2022. Okay, goodbye. Happy New Year. Happy New Year.